Welcome to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. A recent opinion by Justice Neil Gorsuch launched what seems like a hundred law review articles. His opinion in the Gundy case, urging the court to reconsider the non-delegation doctrine, struck a chord throughout conservative legal thought and has spurred a wide diversity of really fascinating uh, new scholarship on the origins of the non-delegation doctrine, the origins of legislative power in the United States, and its ramifications for today. And so the Gray Center organized a roundtable last year, inviting scholars to write a series of papers or workshop papers they were already writing uh, on various aspects of non-delegation. Now, COVID-19, as with everything else, disrupted this roundtable. We weren't actually able to meet in person. Uh, and so this became a, a roundtable on paper, so to speak, with exchanges of emails. But I still couldn't be more excited about the papers that were written. They're going to appear soon on the, the Gray Center's website. Some of them already are there in our working paper series. And I'm very, very pleased to be able to feature two authors of those papers in today's conversation. Nicholas Perillo is the William K. Townsend Professor of Law at Yale, with a secondary appointment as Professor of History there. His research and teaching focuses on administrative law and government bureaucracy. It extends to legal history, remedies, and legislation. And he's the co-author of a leading casebook on administrative law. Nick, welcome. Thanks very much, Adam. I should add, Nick's paper is, is titled A Critical Assessment of the Originalist Case Against Administrative Regulatory Power, New Evidence from the Federal Tax on Private Real Estate in the 1790s. And, and we'll turn to that paper in, in a little while. Our other guest today is Kristen Hickman. She's the McKnight Presidential Professor in Law and Distinguished McKnight University Professor at the University of Minnesota. She focuses on administrative law and tax. And with Richard Pierce, she co-authors the Administrative Law Treatise and their own leading casebook on administrative law. Kristen's paper focuses on the modern debates surrounding non-delegation, the origins of those debates, and, and where we might be headed next. It's going to be the foreword to the George Washington Law Review's annual issue on administrative law, which, of course, is always a must-read. Uh, Kristen, welcome. Thanks, Adam. Um, and let me just add that both Nick and Kristen have been very generous with their time over the years at the Gray Center, participating in, in so many of our programs. We're grateful for that, and we're grateful that they can join us again today. So, so let's begin with Kristen's paper. Kristen, what's your paper about? Great. Thanks, Adam. Um, my article is largely a reaction to what I perceive, particularly post-Gundy, as many scholars, judges, and commentators on both sides of the non-delegation debate having what seem to me to be unreasonable expectations regarding what will happen if the Supreme Court replaces the non-delegation doctrine's intelligible principle standard. Critics of, the modern of modern administrative governance seem to believe that replacing the intelligible principle standard will revitalize the non-delegation doctrine, rein in the administrative state, and substantially curtail Congress's reliance on an unelected executive bureaucracy to make law and policy. Meanwhile, defenders of contemporary administrative governance wail that the Supreme Court is on the verge of gutting the federal government's ability to protect consumers, workers, public health, and the environment. There seems to be, in this sense, on 
both sides of the debate an idea that replacing the intelligible principle standard will return the federal government to how it operated maybe in the 1920s or maybe it's the 19 or the 1850s i'm not sure but i look at where things stand and what has been proposed and i just don't see that happening as the article attempts to lay out contemporary delegations of policy making discretion from congress to agencies are not only widespread they're enormously varied the court tends to focus its non-delegation analysis on specific statutory grants of authority to adopt rules and regulations to accomplish some specifically and congressionally identified task. But these days courts and agencies both recognize general authority delegations in statutes and implied delegations as well as supporting agency policy making where the agency rather than congress identifies the specific subject of the regulations. The paper also talks about hybrid delegations that textually blend the language of specific and general authority so are difficult to categorize if the court were seeking to speak categorically with respect to delegations but this is another point that the article makes there is absolutely zero evidence that the court is considering replacing the intelligible principle standard with an alternative that would be categorical in its application as the article documents the alternatives proposed by justice gorsuch in gundy and subsequently justice kavanaugh in his statement regarding the denial of certiorari in paul versus united states are very incremental and situational they're very case by case statute by statute provision by provision given the scope and variety of delegations if the court really wanted to curtail the administrative state in a substantial way through the non-delegation doctrine it would need to adopt a much more categorical standard than those that have been proposed categorical alternatives are available in the academic literature so for example philip hamburger would prevent the executive from adopting legally binding regulations altogether um less drastic but still sweeping alternatives would be to declare general authority delegations unable constitutionally to support legally binding regulations or to overturn the chevron doctrine altogether to get rid of implied delegations the court hasn't even hinted at the first two of these alternatives and i've written elsewhere that i don't believe that the court will overturn the chevron doctrine altogether either In the end I think replacing the intelligible principle standard would be an exercise of constitutional symbolism with very little real world impact. There's value in constitutional symbolism and there may be good reasons why the court would want to make a symbolic statement about separation of powers principles and the desirability of Congress making the hard choices. I think a lot of what the court is doing right now in the area of the appointment and removal power is similarly symbolic. But stare decisis is more powerful in the non-delegation context than it is in the appointment and removal cases. And given some of the overheated rhetoric in the non-delegation debate, I'm concerned that replacing the intelligible principle standard might be damaging to the court. And given the availability of subconstitutional doctrines and tools for curtailing executive power, I'm not sure that wouldn't be a better way to go pragmatically than replacing the intelligible principle standard.
Well, thanks, Kristen. That's a great overview of, of this. And maybe we'll unpack a few points that you've raised. But first, could we look backwards a little bit? At the outset of your paper, you trace the origins and development of, of the non-delegation doctrine. I mean, maybe could you just give us the high points of, of that history leading up to, to the Whitman case? Uh, sure. I mean, a lot of the debate, and Nick's article speaks to this, uh, as well as some of the others that are out there, a lot of the debate that seems to be going on right now about the intelligible principle standard and the non-delegation doctrine is situated in originalist methodology, trying to look at um, you know, whether and to what extent the non-delegation is mandated by the terms of the Constitution, whether the framers believed or the original public meaning of the Constitution supports a non-delegation doctrine. Um, Whatever you think about that debate, and I think that there are good articles on both sides of it, the Supreme Court, at least, it seems to me, has recognized in principle the non-delegation doctrine since at least the early 1800s. Um, Some scholars peg the first statement regarding the non-delegation doctrine with the Brigarora case. Um, Others peg it with Wayman versus Southard and Chief Justice um, John Marshall's opinion in that case. But if you look at Supreme Court jurisprudence through both the 19th and 20th century, We have numerous occasions where the Supreme Court reiterates in principle that Congress cannot constitutionally delegate the legislative power. The difficulty has been in defining exactly what the Constitution means by the legislative power. Um, And that's really where the intelligible principle standard comes in. Now, as probably everybody listening to this podcast recognizes, The only statute that the Supreme Court has invalidated on non-delegation grounds was the National Industrial Recovery Act in 1935 with the Panama refining and sector poultry cases. Um, More recent jurisprudence regarding the non-delegation doctrine, it seems to me, has settled upon a very detailed statutory inquiry. You look at the benzene case in 1980, or you look at the Mistretta case around 1989, or the American trucking case, um, or Gundy itself, for that matter. Um, You see the Supreme Court engaging in a very detailed statutory inquiry, looking at all of text, history, and purpose in interpreting statutory language not just with respect to the specific delegating language itself, but the broader statute. Um, Again, looking at legislative history and statutory purpose in addition to statutory text and finding limiting principles, finding intelligible principles in the myriad details in those statutes. Um, Statutes over the last 200 years have gotten longer and longer and much more detailed over time. If you look at the Affordable Care Act or the Dodd-Frank Act, they each run a thousand pages. There's a lot of detail in those thousand pages. So even if the specific delegating provision is written very sweepingly and open-endedly without a lot of intelligible principles in that one bare delegating statement, 
the court has been able to find intelligible principles by looking at surrounding provisions, by looking at the other details that are contained in the statute. And they've used that as a mechanism for constraining agency action, even while concluding that the non-delegation doctrine doesn't preclude the particular statutory delegation at issue. Well, we'll move to the modern debates in just a moment. But first, let's just pause on something you raised as you were introducing the paper. It's these different kinds of delegations. Your paper sketches out um, different different types of, de- of statute, statutory delegations. Um, could you maybe reiterate the, the categories and give just a couple of examples? You don't need to sort of go in depth on all of them, but just so, so our, our listeners have a more concrete view of what you're talking about. Sure. Um, so the first and most prominent category, the one that I think the uh, non-delegation doctrine debates tend to focus on, are what uh, many people would refer to as specific authority delegations. That's where Congress itself identifies a particular topic for regulation and instructs or asks or authorizes the agency to adopt legally binding rules and regulations to accomplish that specific congressionally identified purpose. Um, You know, go develop standards that do X, Y, or Z, for example. And the language of delegation itself is often very broad, speaking in terms of necessary or appropriate or in the public interest, Um, you know, but the idea is that Congress identifies a specific topic for the regulations. And again, you know, in its own analysis, the Supreme Court has then found limiting principles by looking at surrounding provisions uh, to, you know, identify limitations and exceptions and so on and so forth. Uh, that might constrain what regulations the agency could adopt. Um, Another category of delegations that's very common in regulatory statutes is uh, what I would label general authority delegations. These tend to be framed in terms of authorizing the agency to adopt all needful or necessary rules and regulations for the enforcement or effectuation of the legislation in question. It might be a subchapter, it might be a chapter, it might be a subtitle or title of the U.S. Code. Um, They don't specify beyond the four corners of the statute itself the subject matter for the regulation. They leave to the agency to identify when elaborating regulations are needed, when they're necessary. And so the agency itself chooses what the specific subject matter of the regulatory action is going to be when it exercises general authority. Implied delegations are similar to general authority. They're a concept that derives from the court's Chevron jurisprudence. In the Chevron decision itself, the Supreme Court recognized that sometimes Congress explicitly grants delegations to agencies to fill in statutory gaps and engage in policymaking. But in other instances, the court said that delegations of policymaking authority are implied by statutory ambiguity. That can be in the form of an undefined or underdefined statutory term. It can be in the form of the interaction of different 
provisions of the statute with one another. We've spent the last 35 years arguing over what it means for a statute to be sufficiently ambiguous that uh, the court will perceive that Congress has implicitly delegated to the agency policymaking discretion. Uh, But uh, those sorts of implied delegations, I think, generally derive from a combination of general authority, as I described, combined with statutory ambiguity. Um, And that's uh, another opportunity, according to the Supreme Court Chevron jurisprudence for agencies to engage in policymaking to fill those statutory gaps. The last category I identified is what I refer to as hybrid delegations. Um, So if a hundred years ago, you had a handful of specific authority delegations in a statute, and then you sort of backstopped that with a general authority rulemaking grant. Um, These days, what you find oftentimes in individual substantive provisions of a statute is you might have a fairly lengthy provision that contains within it one or more specific grants of rulemaking authority, but you get to the bottom of that particular section And Congress will say that uh, the agency will have the authority to adopt all needful rules and regulations to enforce or effectuate this provision of the statute. And Congress may even go on to specify one or two suggested possible topics. But it's this interesting combination of the language of general authority combined with the specificity of a particular statutory provision that actually does something substantive, perhaps even elaborated with a couple of suggestions. So, you know, if the Supreme Court were to adopt a categorical approach to the non-delegation doctrine, for example, that would prohibit legally binding regulations based on general authority grants, One has to wonder how the court would then evaluate these provision-specific delegations that combine that general authority language with the specificity of an individual provision. Um, So those are the various different categories that I've identified, and I think you can see from that why the idea of, you know, just looking at a single provision in a particular statute to evaluate the non, you know, to, to apply the non-delegation doctrine is extraordinarily limited in its scope. So I, I do want to get Nick into the conversation in just a moment, but one, one last question. Uh, let's think about the contemporary debates now, because as I mentioned at the outset, so much of the debate has been occasioned by the recent Gorsuch opinion in Gundy, not necessarily because he wrote it, but because of who joined it, right? Justice Thomas and, and Chief Justice Roberts. And then, of course, Justice Kavanaugh offered some views of his own in his, his opinion in, in the Paul case or the denial of, of certain the Paul case. But, of course, Justice Thomas has been talking about these issues since Whitman. He concurred in Whitman and said that, that, might, that applying existing precedent, you know, brought the court to the right conclusion in Whitman, but that the court might want to consider reconsidering precedent. He brought this up a decade or so later in the in the, the Amtrak case. And now here we are with, as, as you point out, and as, as Nick points out in his paper, you know, a significant number of, the, of justices on the court right now open to a reconsideration of 
the non-delegation doctrine. So we have most recently the Gorsuch approach and we have the Kavanaugh approach. Previously, again, Justice Thomas wrote on this, but interestingly, he wrote, he joined the Gorsuch opinion, which differs in some ways from what he said in the past. He, he, he joined the Gorsuch opinion without any sort of separate statement. So that's interesting. Looking at all of that, how do you sort of read the, 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 this recent flurry of opinions and, and what do you think it, it means for the future? Well, so I think it's clear we've got at least five justices who are troubled by contemporary administrative governance. And the fact that the non-delegation doctrine has evolved to a point that it has very little to say that we're that that, um, you know, in, in terms of preventing Congress from broadly delegating po- policymaking discretion to agencies. What we don't necessarily see is precise agreement on exactly what to replace the intelligible principle standard with. Um, you had three justices uh, sign on to. Justice Gorsuch's Gundy dissent, where Justice Gorsuch, you know, emphasized uh, a distinction between policy decisions or in another part of his opinion, important policy decisions uh, versus mere details. Although he immediately went sort of backtracked a little bit to recognize that sometimes things that would he would recognize as details are important, too, and also that many of the statutes that the court has had previously upheld under the intelligible principle standard would survive his standard too. Um, you know, so if there's one thing you can say about Justice Gorsuch's proposed alternative is it seems relatively indeterminate. Um, hence, one of the reasons why I suggest that it's very case by case, statute by statute, provision by provision. Um, Justice Kavanaugh's alternative is actually, is, is even though Justice Kavanaugh expressed support to an agree for Justice Gorsuch's alternative, at least suggested that it was worthy of consideration. His analysis then went into what seems to me to be something of a different direction by invoking the Supreme Court's major questions doctrine from its Chevron jurisprudence. Uh, Major questions doctrine has been applied to cut off Chevron deference for agency interpretations on a couple of occasions, in King versus Burwell, Chief Justice Roberts writing for the court described major questions doctrine in terms of suggesting that Congress could not intend to delegate authority to an agency to fill in a gap, you know, in sort of an implicit way um, when you know, the issues at stake are economically and politically significant and affect a large number of people or a large portion of the economy. And particularly if they don't squarely fall within the agency's core area of expertise, um, that's a little bit different from Justice Gorsuch's proposed alternative. Because, you know, if you think about it, lots of delegations concern important policy detail or important policy questions for the statute in which they are located, but simultaneously do not necessarily uh, concern areas of great economic or political impact or affect a lot of people. One of the observations I make in the article is it's not at all clear to me 
that the delegation that Justice Gorsuch found objectionable in Gundy would fail a challenge based on an, a, a non-delegation standard that was rooted in the major questions doctrine. Um, you know, Gundy didn't, you know, the SORNA statute that was at issue in Gundy dealt with sex offenders. It wasn't an area of major economic or political import that affected lots of people. Um, you know, so I don't know what you make of that, you know, but to the extent that we don't have five justices who, and Justice Alito hasn't signed on to either one of these options, by the way. So, you know, we've got five justices who all want to revisit the non-delegation doctrine in theory, but they haven't agreed on what to replace it with. And that strikes me as the really critical question. <laughs> you know, I, I remember a, a case from the D.C. Circuit when Ju- Justice Kavanaugh was Judge Kavanaugh. I'm blanking on the name. Maybe you, either of you remember it. But it was the case. It was a case involving tax preparers. And and then Judge Kavanaugh applied a version of the major questions. He invoked the major questions doctrine on on tax preparers. And so he might have a different view of what qualifies as as, as major than, than a lot of sure. others. Um, I think you may be referring to the Loving case. Yeah, that's it. Loving versus U.S. And anyway, I digress. Nick, you've been so patient here, and I, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on Kristen's paper or anything we've discussed so far before we, we turn to your paper. Sure. It's a very illuminating paper. And uh, Kristen, I think uh, one of the aspects of it that I I found most illuminating was uh, something you already talked with Adam about, which is the way that you link the nature and development of the non-delegation doctrine to the nature and development of congressional drafting and of judicial statutory interpretation, and particularly on this distinction uh, that you and other scholars have drawn between um, uh, general rulemaking authority and specific rulemaking authority. And I, I guess one uh, one reason I, I think that's important is that uh, with general rulemaking authority, I, I mean, as, as, as you say, the courts in about the last 50 to 70 years have construed those kinds of statutory rulemaking authorizations to mean that the agency can make rules that are absolutely binding on the private sector, that private actors can be penalized for violating basically just as if they were statutes. Uh, and yet before then, uh, it seems that uh, those provisions were understood in a different way. They, they, were, they were understood, as you say in the paper, to allow the agency to announce its interpretation of the underlying statute. Uh, and and I guess, you know, from a historical and originalist perspective, that's I think that's important because that kind of agency power is very, very old, uh, you know, and, and goes back to, you know, Hamilton in the 1790s uh, issuing these circulars to all the customs collectors telling them, you know, how to interpret this or that provision of the of the early customs acts and that kind of thing. Um and and there are and I mean certainly by the first decade of the 19th century and and actually there's at least one example in the 1790s, uh, you know you have Congress directly authorizing high level administrators to make rules and regulations that are binding on lower level administrators in terms of you know authoritatively determining what the department's interpretation of the act of Congress shall be. Um, but, uh, certainly Philip Hamburger has argued that, that those kinds of authorizations are fundamentally different from 
the kinds of, uh, you know, general authority rulemaking authorizations we have today, where the agency can just make regulations that are absolutely binding on private actors, not just on lower level officials, but private actors, as if they were statutes. And I guess my question is, what, what really is the practical difference between those two things? I mean, if the lower level officials have enforcement and, and adjudicatory authority, that does involve directly binding private persons, uh, you know, but the authority is drawn directly from the statute. They can apply and interpret the statute directly to the private persons. But they also have the leadership of their department telling them how to interpret the law in the form of something that looks like a, a general regulation. Uh, and, and presumably they can be fired or reassigned or disciplined somehow if they don't follow the leadership's orders and apply the statute to the private person in the way that the leadership has directed. What then is the difference between these things? I mean, the, 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 the difference I can think of is that the one would be binding on a reviewing court and the other would not be. Uh, and that is, you know, a, a really significant difference. And, and yet, for that difference to matter, it, it presumes that we're talking about agency actions that are judicially reviewable. And, you know, today we have the presumption in favor of judicial review. But in the 18th century, I mean, judicial review is available on a much more spotty basis. It's almost never available ex ante unless you're trying to force the officer to do something by way of mandamus. But you don't have injunctions or anything like them. Uh, you know, you have these weird ex post damages actions that we've sort of, uh, you know, cast aside over the last two centuries. Um, and certainly there are a lot of issues for which uh, judicial review is just totally unavailable, such as the, the valuation of property for tax purposes, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. So I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I, I mean, Hamburger emphasizes this distinction a lot as being really jurisprudentially important. Um, but how important is it practically? I mean, I'm just interested to hear hear you uh, say more about that. Well, as you know, Nick, you know, of course, in administrative law circles, we talk all the time about how, you know, irrespective of the bindingness of guidance, prudent regulated parties follow non-binding sub-regulatory guidance for pragmatic reasons all the time. Legally, though, I think the distinction comes down to a couple of things. Um, one of them is penalties. Um, with, you know, many statutes provide that you can be penalized for non-compliance, you know, with the regu- with the agency rules and regulations, um, so that all the agency has to demonstrate in order to impose, in order to take away your license, in order to uh, impose a financial penalty on you, you know, whatever the legal consequences are, um, all the agency has to do is demonstrate that you violated the regulation, not that you violated the statute. Um, and that strikes me as a meaningful distinction, um, particularly when, as you correctly identified, when you do go to court as the consequence of having been deemed worthy of whatever ne- negative legal consequences the agency deems you worthy of, um, the standard of review with respect to legally binding agency regulations is a deferential one. Um, Whereas if what we're talking about is non-binding 
agency interpretations of what the statute means. Um, I suppose in some sense these days we have Skidmore deference, which talks about giving some weight to legal, you know, to agency expertise, but courts don't feel as bound by non-binding agency interpretations of statutes as they do by legally binding regulations. Um, You know, leaving aside Chevron, you know, even before Chevron, I think when when courts were reviewing regulations adopted pursuant to specific authority, which as you point out, uh, for a long time were the only ones that the courts recognized as being legally binding, um, you know, they tended to be very, very deferential, even as far back as the 1930s. Um, whereas they, for many decades and even still, are just much less deferential when it's just what the agency thinks the statute means. Um, and I think you put together penalties, uh, you know, or legal consequences combined with the standard of review. And what you find is in that post enforcement environment, when someone suffers direct legal consequences as a result of agency enforcement actions, um, you know, that's a very different posture, you know, if you think in terms of the standard of review and the penalty likelihood um, or the likelihood of the negative legal consequences being imposed. Um, when you um, think of general authority regulations as only being what the statute, what the agency thinks the statute means, as opposed to uh, these legally binding pronouncements that carry the same force and effect as the statute itself. Well, this is a fascinating discussion, and I wish it could keep going, but I definitely want to take some time now to turn to, to Nick's paper. Nick, when I introduced your paper, I mentioned its its subtitle, or the, the second half of its title is New Evidence from the Federal Tax on Private Real Estate in the 1790s. This is a fascinating paper because what you've done is, as, you, as I'll, you'll go to explain in just a moment, is to investigate a significant statute from the, the very earliest era of our constitutional government, which has really significant ramifications uh, for the non-delegation debate. Yet, as you point out in your paper, it's been totally overlooked by historians and scholars. And so, if you wouldn't mind, could you just uh, introduce your paper and, 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 and let the audience uh, know about this, this fascinating tax statute? Sure. Uh, so... So following up on uh, our, our conversation with Kristen, um, several scholars uh, such as Philip Hamburger, uh, Michael Rapoport, and others have argued that the original constitution did not allow for administrative rulemaking if the rulemaking was coercive of private persons, uh, unless, unless the rulemaking turned solely on a factual determination, um, or unless, uh, according to some formulations, if the rulemaking was about foreign affairs. Uh, and, and, and then there's this question of whether that kind of categorical uh, ban on rulemaking, as, as, as Kristen uh, rightly uh, calls it, could catch on in the Supreme Court. Um, I, I guess my reading of what the justices have said is that Justice Thomas uh, actually uh, is an adherent uh, of that of that kind of categorical prohibition based on what he said in the Amtrak case, uh, in, in, in his separate solo opinion in the Amtrak case 
in, in 2015. Um, now, as, as you and Kristen pointed out in your conversation, Thomas then signed on to Gorsuch's opinion in Gundy, which may be substantially less categorical. Certainly, uh, Kristen uh, reads it that way, as, as do uh, a lot of other observers, because, uh, it, you know, it doesn't just make uh, what are thought to be, you know, kind of relatively hard and fast uh, exceptions for factual determinations in foreign affairs. It also has this more amorphous uh, exception for details as opposed to policy. Um, but, but I think we really don't know uh, where the line would be drawn between detail and, and policy uh, and, um, uh, and, and the, the narrower, uh, the, or the, the, the broader the definition of, of impermissible policy. Uh, the more Gorsuch's view starts to look like Thomas's view. I should also say that in another uh, dissent, in the Kaiser dissent, which was also joined by uh, by Justice Kavanaugh in 2019, um, Gorsuch dro- drops a footnote where, on my reading, he expressly leaves the door open simply for the adoption of Thomas's Amtrak uh, uh, theory, which I do think is more uh, is more categorical. Um, and then, uh, but 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 I mean, furthermore, even even uh, if if uh, Kristen is right that um, the possibilities for a categorical reformulation of the non-delegation doctrine have been exaggerated, uh, I still think it would be consequential if uh, if if the justices had in the back of their minds this view that rulemaking is generally constitutionally suspect because uh, and this is another theme of Kristen's paper that that general sense of uh, constitutional suspectness uh, could uh, color uh, all sorts of the justices' views about other aspects of, a, of administrative law. It would suggest that they believe that the administrative state is fundamentally constitutionally fallen uh, and that, you know, we should perhaps do whatever we can uh, incrementally along lots of dimensions about, you know, Chevron or this or that. Uh, to you know, try to you know ameliorate this fallen constitutional world, but but what if um, what if rulemaking is not actually constitutionally suspect as a matter of original meaning, and that's kind of the question I'm asking in in the paper, um, and, and the paper as as you as as you said is is about what I think is a significant counterexample to the idea that the original constitution categorically prohibited rulemaking along the lines suggested by Philip Hamburger or, or, or Justice Thomas. Um, so the counterexample uh, is the 1798 congressional legislation imposing a direct tax on property. Uh, this tax did grant rulemaking authority to administrators. Uh, it was coercive of private persons, and it was not about foreign affairs. It was, it was a tax on, on real estate. Um, and I would argue that the rulemaking decisions did not turn simply on fact determinations, or if they did, they imply a very broad definition of what is factual, which could legitimate a lot of rulemaking today that is discretionary and policy laden. Um, so let me say a word about how the tax worked. Um, when Congress imposed a direct tax like this, it was required by the Constitution to apportion the total sum to be raised among the states according to each state's free population plus three-fifths of the state's slave population. Uh, In 1798, Congress decided to raise $2 million. 
and it followed the Constitution's apportionment formula by imposing a set dollar quota on the taxpayers of each state. There was then the question of how the quota was to be raised within the state. Uh, For the taxpayers of each state, that was done in three stages. In the first stage, each slave owner was taxed 50 cents per enslaved person. In the second stage, each owner of a house was taxed at a progressive rate on the value of the house. And in the third stage, each owner of a land parcel separate from a house was taxed at a flat rate on the value of the land parcel, and that rate was set at whatever level was necessary to make up the remainder of the state's quota. So as you see, the tax required a value to be assigned to every piece of real estate with a house or without in every state. Now, some state governments had valued real estate for their own state taxes, but many of those valuations were really old, and some of the states had never done real estate valuations at all. So Congress provided for a new federal valuation of all real estate in all the states. Federal assessors, each assigned to a locality, would assign values to parcels in the first instance. But it was possible that the assessors in one area of a state would take a different approach to valuation than assessors in other areas of the same state. To address that problem, Congress established for each state a federal board of tax commissioners with the power to divide the state into federal assessment districts and to raise or lower the value of all parcels within any district uniformly by any percentage, quote, as shall appear to be just and equitable, unquote. Those are the words of the statute, as shall appear to be just and equitable. And the federal boards really did exercise this power. Um, For example, the federal board covering Maryland raised the value of all houses in Baltimore by 100%. Uh, relative to other parts of Maryland. Uh, This power of each federal board to divide its state into districts and to raise or lower the taxable value of all the parcels in any district is a rulemaking power under the Supreme Court's case law. It's a determination generically and prospectively deciding many individual outcomes, and it matches the fact pattern in the classic case deciding rulemaking for constitution, excuse me, defining rulemaking uh, for constitutional purposes, which is the old uh, bimetallic investment company case from 1915 on uniform countywide tax value revisions uh, by a state tax board. Um, so that, that's, that's an explanation of, of the statute, but I'm, I'm happy, to, happy to chat about it. Well, before we go further, I would just love to hear um, a little bit about the, the research method here, because you point out in the paper, again, that this has been totally overlooked, that the records were hard to find. Could you just give the audience sort of a sense of, of, of the, just the research project, how it developed? Sure, sure, sure. sure. A lot yeah. of, of detailed research over the year for years your ACUS report and, and other things where you really had to dig into primary sources. Um, how did you do this? Sure. So um, so the, the congressional authorization of the rulemaking power is right there on the face of the statute. Uh, and, and so, you know, that was, um, that was what initially drew me into the research. And I, I wanted to figure out how, 
uh, uh, lawmakers and administrators, you know, in the 1790s understood that and how they used it. Um, and it turns out that there there has been, even though this tax has uh, been almost completely ignored by legal scholars, uh, it, 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 there has been significant work done on it by historians of slavery, uh, historians of housing, because the tax involves such enormous governmental data gathering uh, on, uh, on on enslaved people, on houses and cities, and and on you know kind of other um, other other. Uh, uh, you know, actors in the American economy at the time. Uh, and, um, and, and so I, in reading that literature, it became, I, I realized that there were a bunch of extant records of what the uh, valuations had been. And so the question then became, well, is there a way of looking at those records to figure out what the federal boards did in terms of this sweeping power to do these mass revisions of tax valuations? And it turns out that there is, that, that there are these these documents for every state called the general lists, where there's a column that says what the percentage revision was that was ordered by the federal board. And it'll say, you know, 100 percent, 50 percent or something like that. Um, and so the question is, how do you find these general lists? Uh, and they've they've survived for several states. Um, the, the, the offices themselves expired by their own terms in about the year 1799 or, or 1800, depending on when the uh, when the the tax valuation officials finished their work, um, but the the records were then given to other federal officers in the area, sometimes to the custom house, sometimes to the you know the the federal district court that was nearby or something like that. Over the years, some of them were lost, but some of them survived. <laughs> uh, you know, so for example, the records in Pennsylvania uh, ended up in the hands of the U.S. District Court in Philadelphia. Uh, which then gave them to the National Archives, uh, and then the National Archives digitized them, or excuse me, uh, microfilmed them in the 1960s, and then Ancestry.com uh, digitized them about 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, you know, you can tell a similar story for, you know, how the records have changed hands. There's the, the minute book for the, uh, the, the federal board in New Jersey, which has a wealth of information about what the board did there with its powers, um, you know, the, the president of the board, uh, you know, just gave it to his son who gave it to his grandson who gave it to someone else who then, you know, uh, uh, you know, sold, you know, sold it at auction and at a state sale. And then it was eventually acquired by Rutgers University, which has it now. Uh, so <laughs> these things are scattered all over the place, but they are um, they are available and they do tell us how these early exercises of federal administrative power with respect to private rights worked in the 1790s. This is just fascinating. So you, one, one sort of response that you anticipate very early on at the outset of your paper is those who will look at, at this history and say, this is all just fact finding. Um, and that's a sort of a, a, a caveat to the, uh, the, some of the, the more categorical arguments about the non-delegation doctrine. I mean, you look back at cases like, I guess it was the Brig Aurora, mm-hmm. where where president the president's authority over tariffs was based on a, a factual finding of a, of a sort, right? Whenever, I guess, either England or France ceased to violate the neutral commerce of the United States. So, so is this all just fact-finding? So uh, it's, it's a very important question because, uh, I, I, I mean, even the formulations uh, of the non-delegation doctrine offered by Philip Hamburger or Justice Thomas recognize uh, an exception for rules that, deter- that, that 
turn solely on on fact finding. Um, so if you uh, if you characterize these mass revisions of tax valuations as fact findings, then they can be made technically consistent with those more categorical theories. Um, what I would say is that if you do that, then you are perforce adopting a very broad definition of what is a fact finding uh, and one that could bless most and potentially all policymaking, uh, rulemaking delegations today. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess I'd, I'd start by emphasizing the language of the statute. It says, you know, they can revise and just and vary the valuations uh, by any percentage as shall appear to be just and equitable. Uh, it doesn't call for a factual finding um, there. Uh, you know, it's it's not, uh, you know, linked to, uh, you know, evidentiary determinations in 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 any way, uh, you could certainly read it uh, within the structure of the larger statute to indicate that, you know, it, it's supposed to be some kind of exercise in valuation. But if you look at the other provisions of the statute regarding valuation, which are the ones that pertain directly to the lower level assessors who did the valuations in the first instance before the boards got to them, uh, the, the definition of value is extremely vague. It just says value each parcel at what it is worth in money. Um, there's no methodology given. Uh, there, there are a few provisions uh, about certain pieces of evidence that are supposed to be gathered, but they're all very basic things about physical features of the property, like what material a house is made from or something like that. There's nothing about gathering any, any economic data, nothing about looking at the income of the property or sale prices of the property in the past or that kind of thing. We know that some officials sometimes did look at those things, but that was entirely their discretion. Um, so you have, uh, you, 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 you have, you know, what is, uh, you could construe as a task in valuation, but what, one that is wide open methodologically. Uh, and I mean, if you talk to a property tax lawyer today, they'll tell you that, you know, we're accustomed in tax to thinking the rate is what matters, but for real estate taxation, where you don't have, uh, you know, a standardized, uh, a standardized commodity and a public market price, the importance of the rate is easily dwarfed by choices between valuation methods. That's what really matters. Um, so, uh, and, you know, so value, valuations methods are wide open. I, I also in the paper have, you know, an analysis of how property valuation was done at the time. Uh, it was recognized by contemporaries as being highly uncertain, highly contestable. Uh, and then furthermore, when you're talking about these mass valuations where, you know, you could basically say, you know, the, you know, the federal board in, in Virginia, which covers, you know, 18% of the U.S. population is supposed to divide the state into however many districts it wants. They divided it into, into about 80 districts. And then to determine the average per acre value of property in every district relative to every other district, um, you know, that is uh, a, a task that is uh, so complex, um, so methodologically wide open and so sweeping that it's inevitably going to be politicized. And if you look at contemporaneous uh, state legislative politics regarding state property taxes, it was notorious uh, that uh, mass valuation across the state was highly politicized. And in fact, I would, and I would really emphasize this, 
it was always controlled by the state legislature. Okay, so, you know, when the state of Maryland levied state real estate taxes for state purposes, the Maryland legislature in the tax statute would mandate that the average value, the average per acre value of land in Prince George's County had to come out to a certain dollar sum. The average per acre value of land in Cumberland County had to come out to a different dollar sum. All this distributive politics would be done in the state legislature itself. And these federal boards were inheriting exactly that distributive task. And so I think the, I think it was understood by contemporaries to be fundamentally political in the sense that they always had elected politicians. They always had elected state legislatures doing it until the federal government assigned it to administrators. Um, so, I mean, you, you can certainly come up with definitions of the fact policy distinction that construe that as a fact, but they imply a very broad definition of fact, one that includes sweeping determinations that are methodologically wide open and, and highly politicized. The last thing I'd add is that, um, is that it is certainly true that the valuation of property in litigation in the 1790s was normally a question for the jury. And so one might look at that point and say, well, therefore, it must have been understood to be a factual question. but in response to that, I would say the distinction that Philip Hamburger or Justice Thomas seek to make is not the distinction between fact and law on which the judge-jury division of labor and litigation turns. It, it, on the contrary, Justice Thomas and Philip Hamburger recognize that agencies could legitimately make determinations of law. They could apply statutes. The distinction that they are seeking to make is one between fact and policy or rather a tripartite distinction between fact, policy, and law. And the historical judge-jury division of labor is not um, relevant, in my view, to this fact-policy distinction uh, that scholars and jurists today are seeking to make for purposes of the, of the non-delegation doctrine. So I don't think that is really relevant evidence for our purposes here. Now, your paper explores so much more about the statute and, and, and its administration. You discuss the absence of judicial review of these determinations. Uh, you also chronicle the, the, the sort of the broad political acceptance of this entire framework in its, in its own time, showing that it was, that it was not sort of hotly contested, but, but pushed through, but rather this was seemed to be pretty broadly accepted. Um, maybe we'll, 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 I'll ask a big picture question and we'll bring Kristen in. Um, with everything you, you detail in the paper and the conclusions you, you draw from it, just looking squarely at this tax statute and its administration, how should that, inf- what, what does that tell us about, about the modern debates? You've already referred a couple of times to, to, to Philip Hamburger's influential book and, and Justice Thomas. Um, do you have any advice on how we ought to understand uh, this scholarship in, in, in the context of the more contemporary debates? Well, as as Kristen uh, uh, lays out in her paper, uh, there are categorical formulations of the non-delegation doctrine, and then there are more open-ended formulations. Um, I think that the 1798 direct tax legislation is a direct counterexample to the more categorical formulations. Um, you know, this idea that there's a categorical prohibition on rulemaking unless it 
uh, is about foreign affairs or unless it's non-coercive or unless it turns on facts. I think, you know, this suggests that, uh, you know, the, the, you know, there's this, what seemed to be constitutionally accepted legislation in the 1790s that's not consistent with that. Or if you, if you, if you construe the fact exception to be consistent with it, it implies a very broad definition of fact. Um, as to the open-ended formulations, on the other hand, um, you know, which may be where Justice Gorsuch is pointing uh, in the Gundy uh, in the Gundy dissent, um, I, I don't think that this legislation uh, is as direct a counterexample to that. Um, but I would say there is a separate difficulty with the open-ended formulations uh, as a matter of original meaning, uh, which, which is that if you have an open-ended formulation of the non-delegation doctrine, uh, if you think that, uh, you know, Congress must decide the important subjects, but it's okay to leave the details to administrators, and your task is to see whether that formulation uh, maps on convincingly to what the early Congresses did, <laughs> the thing is that in every statute, there are going to be some things that Congress specified and some things it didn't specify. And it becomes very tempting to just say for any given statute that the things that Congress specified were the important things and the things that Congress didn't specify were the details. Uh, and for that reason, the, the open-ended formulation, if you're trying to test it against original meaning, risks being non-falsifiable. Because it's so open-ended that it can be fitted to almost any individual example. So, I mean, certainly there are things in the 1798 direct tax legislation that Congress did decide. It capped the total amount to be raised. It set the total amount to be, to be raised in each individual state. The distribution of the tax within each state was highly discretionary with the administrators. But, you know, you could, you could say that that's a detail. Um, what I, what I, 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 I am not yet satisfied with um, how the more open-ended determinations have been filled out in terms of, you know, you know kind of mid-level principles uh, uh, in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, coming up with a more falsifiable uh, uh, formulation that can be tested against uh, evidence of original meaning in the early statutes. Kristen, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this paper. Well, so as always, you know, Nick's paper is just, you know, so incredibly rich with detail and so thorough that you learn a ton just by reading it, irrespective of whether you end up agreeing with it or not. Um, you know, I think that Nick is absolutely right that the the difficulty his work points out, I think, is, is the difficulty with Justice Gorsuch's proposed test um, in the sense that you know, Nick particularly focused in his discussion on uh, the kinds of valuation and other questions that uh, were involved in the, the property tax uh, assessments um, as, you know, only being fact finding in the most broadest sense of what could possibly constitute fact finding. You know, on the other hand, and maybe this is just, you know, Nick and I are both sort of, you know, tax people. Um, you know, so it, this may be one of those, you know, we see the detail, you know, we see, we see the policy implications of 
these very nuanced questions about valuation. Um, and, you know, Nick's absolutely right that, that anybody who knows property taxes knows that, you know, the rate is practically the least relevant part of the equation. Um, but, uh, you know, I think you can say that about just if, if it's not a fact finding, then, you know, I think it's very easy, as Nick suggests, to say that it's mere details. Um, too easy to say that it's mere details. If you're not a tax person, not very steeped in the nuances of property taxes, I can imagine your average Supreme Court justice saying, oh, those are just mere details. There's an example, a similar example in, in my paper involving the peanut content in peanut butter, um, you know, where, uh, you know, the Food and Drug Administration spent the better part of a decade uh, trying to settle on the peanut content in peanut butter. And in my way of thinking, I don't really care if my peanut butter has 85% peanuts or 90, 90% peanuts. But, you know, they spent a decade and had hundreds of thousands of comments. And, you know, I mean, this huge involved, you know, drama over whether peanut butter would have 85 or 90 percent content. Again, I think your average Supreme Court justice would say, oh, that's fact finding. Oh, that those are mere details. And yet, obviously, they're not. There's an there's an extent to which whether something is policy or whether something is mere details or fact-finding, being in the eye of the beholder. And that's one of the reasons why I find Justice Gorsuch's proposed test to be so indeterminate. Or even, you know, the the, the suggestion that there is a distinction between fact-finding and policy or law and policy. Um, You know, we've spent the last 35 years in the Chevron context arguing over where the line between law and policy is and haven't managed to do that in any sort of a way that yields a consensus. Um, It's unsurprising to me that a distinction between fact-finding and policy would be just as difficult to determine. Um, Hence the reason why I think ultimately all of this is more about constitutional symbolism than about really drawing hard and fast lines that can be applied in a consistent way across a variety of administrative fields and statutes. Nick, do you have any further thoughts? Uh, I mean, I, I guess um, I, I, I thought I, related to this, I thought an interesting aspect of Kristen's paper was uh, the the comparison to the recent cases on uh, the removal power. Um, I, I mean, there you you had uh, an extremely open-ended test under Morrison v. Olson. Uh, You you know, uh, uh, removal restrictions are unconstitutional if they uh, impede the chief executive in executing the office or something. Uh, And yet the the court has come up with what seem like more determinate uh, sort of mini tests for very specific scenarios, uh, you, you, you can't have, uh, you know, removal restrictions uh, if it's a single-headed agency. You can't have two layers of removal restrictions or, or, or that kind of thing. Although, and then as Kristen points out, um, the remedies in these cases 
have been extremely narrow. So it's kind of like the 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 court is is you know uh, uh, only willing to pull the trigger when it's uh, you know when it's uh, shooting blanks or whatever. Um, so I mean, I'm wondering. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess my questions about the future are both, you know, whether whether the outcomes are going to end up being relatively narrow or relatively disappointing to the, uh, you know, to the proponents of of of, of sweeping change, um, and and then also, you know, how how determinate or or indeterminate the, the tests are going to be, and maybe you can only get determinacy if you if you do it for these mini scenarios or something like that, I mean, maybe, maybe we can expect some development that's similar to the, to the removal cases. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Let's end on, on a big picture question. Uh, early in Kristen's paper, she retraces the history of the non-delegation debates. She points out that, you know, a generation ago, John Hart Ely was was focused on non-delegation in his famous book, uh, Democracy and Distrust, Skelly Wright and others. Uh, we're thinking about these issues. Obviously, in today's context, the the ideological valence of these debates is 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 much different, right? It's Justice Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, um, Hamburger, and, and others focusing on these. Um, I, I guess my question, and we'll start with Kristen, since you sort of point this out in the paper, in your paper, is how should we, in the long run? sort of understand the shifting tides of the non-delegation debates? Um, <laughs> what a big question, right? Um, <laughs> it, it's popped up now momentarily um, or recently in what I guess we can call conservative circles. It popped up a generation ago in, in, in what I don't know what we'd call it, liberal circles, progressive circles. Uh, this is not a debate that's new. It's timeless, but it arises from time to time in, in different contexts. Is it just is non delegation just sort of a is it an, an is the non delegation doctrine I guess at any moment in time just an answer in search of a question and it so it answers different questions at different times or is there something that connects all of this together from from John Hart Ely and Skelly Wright to to Thomas and and, and Gorsuch and others today? You know, I have difficulty answering that question. Um, I do like your suggestion that maybe it's a question in, or it's a, it's an answer in search of a question. Um, you know, look, I will say, though, I'll say this. Um, I do think in the 1970s, as today, um, there are people who are concerned about um, administrative governance. Governance by, you know, technocratic experts who are not elected and who don't answer to the electoral process. Um, some of that in the 1970s, I think, was a reaction to age, concerns about agency capture. Um, I think today um, some of it is concerns about um, the size or more accurately, the intrusiveness of government in some sectors. Um, you know, it's interesting when you look at today's debates, it doesn't seem to, non-delegation doctrine doesn't seem to come up when you're talking about government benefits. It only talks about, comes up when you're talking about negative legal consequences um, or statutes, the administration of statutes with negative legal consequences. 
Um, you know, so it's not really about the size of government. It's about the intrusiveness of government. Um, you know, so it may be that different concerns animate the doctrine at different times or animate, you know, thinking about the doctrine at different times. Um, I think to a great extent, you have to at least acknowledge that whatever we think about delegation in the 1790s or the early 1800s, um, government is not just bigger today. It is different today in a lot of ways. Um, you know, certainly delegations, and this is my point with respect to the types of delegations, statutes are very different. Um, delegations are, you know, different in type in a lot of ways. And, you know, so it's, it's those differences in government that I think, you know, hit some people on a very visceral level. They don't necessarily know precisely how to frame the concern beyond separation of powers. You know, that is a concept that has a really symbolic meaning for a lot of people, but the devil, of course, is in the details. And once you start getting into the details, then any consensus along those lines starts to fall apart about what we mean by separation of powers. Um, you know, but to the extent that government is different and to the extent that people have concerns about administrative governance, whether they're animated by concerns about regulatory capture or about government intrusiveness or what have you, um, you know, that's really, I think, the, the you know, the way that government has changed and concerns that you have about government are finding a home in the debate over the non-delegation doctrine, um, irrespective of whether revitalizing that doctrine would actually in any way, shape or form solve the problem that, and you know, gives rise to the concerns in the first place. Well, thank you for taking a shot at that. My question was so muddled, I realized afterwards there wasn't even an, an intelligible principle in it. But Nick, no, I think there was, Adam. May I, may I follow up, actually? <laughs> please do. I'll let you have the final word. Uh, so just following up on, on one of Kristen's points. So um, I, 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 I think the politics of the non-delegation doctrine uh, seem to vary depending on what government activity it's understood to be applicable to. Uh, Kristen drew the distinction between uh, coercive governmental activities and on the one hand and the granting of benefits on the other hand. Um, and certainly that's a distinction that uh, a lot of um, proponents of strengthening the doctrine have sought to make. And then I'd say a third area is national security and foreign affairs. Um, and the, uh, the, 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 the movement uh, among scholars and jurists recent, recently to strengthen the non-delegation doctrine has been mainly with respect to domestic coercion as opposed to national security, as opposed to benefits, uh, what, what Kristen called intrusiveness. Um, but I mean, I think at different times over U.S. history, you know, other sectors have come to the fore. And actually, if you if you look at the 1790s, I mean, um, uh, the, the, the debate that most people point to as reflecting some contemporaneous understanding of some abstract limit on delegation is actually about post roads, which are government service and not anything coercive. And I think probably the most eloquent 
uh, proponent of something like a non-delegation doctrine in the 1790s was the Jeffersonian uh, leader of the House, Albert Gallison, uh, who articulated the idea uh, at, at the time of the quasi-war with France with respect to the control of the military, uh, very much in a national security context. Um, so uh, th- th- this, this is, this is a, a doctrine that can have potentially very different political ramifications depending on what it's applied to. Um, and I actually think the, the debate over how stringently to formulate the standard uh, is, is, no, uh, is, 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 is no more important than, this, than the debate over the, the range of application of the doctrine to begin with, which is also something that's very active right now. Well, when I said a few moments ago, you know, or I asked, is, is this non-delegation doctrine an answer in search of a question? I, mean, I don't want to give it short shrift. It might be an important answer to a lot of important questions. And that's why I've, I've really enjoyed not just this roundtable, but the, the previous work that the Gray Center has, has workshopped on the non-delegation doctrine. I was just looking through the list before we started and, and we've, we've, you, and listeners can find this on our working papers, you know, really interesting papers over the years on non-delegation by Kerry Colin E.C. and Jennifer Mascott, Brenner Fissel, Adam Gustafson, Joe Postel, David Schoenbrod, Paul Larkin. And even before it was the Gray Center, C. Boyd and Gray wrote a paper on the benzene case. Um, in this most recent roundtable, again, uh, many of the papers are already online or they'll be there soon. Papers, uh, the two papers that have gotten a lot of attention uh, Julian Mortensen and Nicholas Bagley's paper on non-delegation, Elon Worman's response to them. Those were all um, part of this roundtable. And then new papers by John Yu and a paper by Aaron Nielsen on the minor questions doctrine, as he puts it. They're all really interesting. I'm so glad that the center was able to uh, help contribute to the process of their development. And I'm in particular thankful to our two authors today, uh, Nick Perillo and Kristen Hickman. Their papers, again, you can find on our working paper series. Kristen's paper will be the forward in the George Washington Law Review's uh, administrative law issue. Nick's paper is forthcoming in the Yale Law Journal. Nick, Kristen, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much, Adam. Thank you, Adam. And thanks as always to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Gray Matters. <laughs>